Hello and welcome to the test screening. I'm Billy. I'm Chloe. We're two film school graduates and cinephiles who can't seem to get enough of the big screen. So now we're bringing you our weekly insights into the biggest releases, hottest topics and forgotten classics every Monday. Hello everyone and welcome back to the test screening. My name is Chloe. And my name's Billy. And we're going to kick off this week by talking about the newly announced adaptation of a David Cronenberg film into a TV series. So, Billy, what is this and what's it it all about? So, Dead Ringers is a 1988 psychological thriller from director David Cronenberg. It's one of his most famous, distinct and revered films and probably out of the ones I've seen, uh, my personal favourite of his work. It's about two twin gynaecologists, Elliot and Beverly Mantle, who perform ethically questionable procedures on infertile women. They're kind of viewed as real trailblazers in the field of gynaecology and really experts and and masters of the given field. Because they're identical twins, they also have this, they have very complicated personal lives where one of them is completely romantically and, and socially inept so they kind of use the the fact that they're identical to their advantage to kind of fulfill their romantic and social desires in some very sort of questionable very, very dark sequences there's some really interesting examinations of you know to what ex- to what extent you know can you be your own person if you're really like tied to a sibling and how much you know they define each other's lives and their own success it's a really terrific film, and of course, it's got David Cronenberg's usual, um, really icy, cold, um, disturbing, you know, body horror-inflected visuals with these really strange sort of red get-ups that they have in their surgery scenes, and all these strange, twisted medical apparatus that they use. And it's been announced that on April twenty-first, we will have a six-episode mini-series where Elliot and Beverly will be played by uh, Rachel Weisz. They're played by Jeremy Irons in a really great dual performance in the original film. And I think she's a really inspired casting choice. I mean, considering her role in, I think particularly, you know, 2018's The Favourite, where she plays, you know, the the sort of the muse to uh, Olivia Colman's Queen Anne, and she has very kind of complex, pernicious motivations, and but also a lot of, underlying you know sadness and and hurt and pain i think she's a really ideal casting choice you know in, in the past i've been I, if you'd have said this to me about 10 years ago or five ten years ago that a film with kind of like classic status as dead ring as was being adapted into a tv series i would be quite trepidatious because television adaptations of films and say video games and other books and works of art haven't always panned out but given that we've had things like, you know, Normal People recently, which was just amazing. I mentioned Normal People because Alice Birch, who was one of the writers for Normal People, serves as the showrunner for Dead Ringers. And she's also written for Succession, another one of my favourite TV dramas. So we've already got really great pedigree going in there. And we've had the, we'll be talking about it in a future episode, but we've had the recent brilliant adaptation of The Last of Us video game, uh, HBO TV series, which has gone down a storm. Talk about that. Me neither. Me neither. Especially because you know I've played the game, you haven't. So we'll get some different perspectives there. But I think adaptations of stories from different mediums have, you know, have been hit and miss in the past. But we've hit kind of I think a real stride with them in recent years. So I'm actually I'm more excited and hopeful for the Dead Ringers TV series than perhaps I previously would have been. And the promotional images feel like they're keeping a really nice grip on Cronenberg's original kind of stylistic intent and visual style for the series, but kind of giving it, you know, a modern, very cinematic punch and flair. And I'm just really interested to see if Rachel Wise can, which I'm sure she will, make those personalities as distinct and recognisably, you know, individual as Jeremy Irons does in the original film. Absolutely. I mean, also in film news this week, obviously we've got the Oscars on Sunday. So by the time this episode is released, we will know who have, who's won all of those big awards. 
I mean, what I really wanted to focus on, because I've seen some things this week, obviously we've been talking about the Oscars a lot on the on the lead up to the ceremony. But we've got Top Gun Maverick, which is one of the biggest films this year, being nominated for Best Picture. And when I go online and I have a look at like online forms and things, there's a lot of people saying that Top Gun Maverick was the film that saved cinema. And listen, I enjoyed Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> I'm not sure to what extent I agree with that statement, but that, that it does ring kind of true in a sense. So I just want to see what what's your opinion on these films that are supposedly, you know, saving saving cinema. <laughs> well, I very much enjoy Top Gun Maverick too. I, I, I think it's actually a much superior film than the original Top Gun. I actually showed that to a housemate in third year of uni about the time that we were going to see Top Gun Maverick. And I actually realised that the original Top Gun's kind of bad. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's not even by 80 standards, it's a bit like it's quite ropey. But the, it's I think Maverick's cheesy. A, Yeah, I think the um sort of the just the behaviour of some of the men is very, very questionable, but I think Maverick's a legitimately very good and self-reflexive and actually quite moving piece of work. But I think, for me, Top Gun Maverick was like the perfect storm of it's a huge blockbuster with really, with real attention to detail and ambition put into the action sequences, you know, real flying of real planes with the cameras bolted to the planes. So it promised a real spectacle. You had a recognised IP, that had been come back to decades later that has a lot of affection and a real fan adoration for it and sentimental attachment you know from the audience from the 80s who will have seen it growing up and and also just this very kind of big action film to pull everyone back into the cinemas post you know the pandemic and you know generate box office revenue so that that love for the source material and you know the promise of a great big spectacle at the time at which was released i think just right right time right place and i think it, it helped and it also ended up being actually really quite good in terms of the way it it built upon the characters of the original and actually sort of pondered the point the points of the points that they've reached in life and how they've changed as people in relation to the original while still you know uh, having sort of the, the lovingly kind of sprinkling in the cheese that's present in the original film. But I don't, I, yeah, of course, but I don't think overdoing it either. So I do kind of get a little bit tired of the, the notion that it saved cinema. I mean, yes, it was incredibly financially successful, but, you know, films like Avatar have also done that as well. You know, with things like Avengers Endgame and Black Panther and lots of big budget superhero productions of recent years, does it really do, aside from, you know, the timing and the recognised IP, you know, did it really do anything much more than those MCU releases did? I, I don't really know. In the grander pantheon of cinema, I'm not sure if it really added that much. I mean, for me, another big awards contender, everything, everywhere, all at once, you know, to me, that has, in inverted commas, saved cinema in the storytelling sense because, you know, so many people, so many people online you know, columnists and film journalists have said, you know, I couldn't have come up with half the ideas that they did in that film in like 10 or 20 years. You know, it's just, it's origin. It, it's proven to me that originality really isn't dead. Not that I ever thought it was, but, you know, at times you do feel like originality and cinematic storytelling has waned because of how much we're leaning on reboots and remakes and sequels and these established, you know, DC and MCU IPs and you know ever ever expanding casts of characters. Everything Everywhere All at Once was one of the best cinema going experiences that I had had in a long time. I think mm. it was packed. It was absolutely packed when we went to see it and it was great. It kind of did give me that Avengers Endgame atmosphere because you know the, the audience were reacting to what was on screen you know everyone was laughing together everyone was going ooh together everyone was cheering together so it did kind of have that you know it was it was a movie to go to the cinema to see that mm. reaction uh, same as like Endgame and things like that it's like you can't get the full experience of it until you go and see it in the cinema I th no, I, 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 yeah I agree I think films like that are the things that are saving cinema I think Top Gun maybe does come into that category but um, I, I don't think it belongs alone on that pedestal 
no I, I i think we should you know give it its plaudits for what it did for keeping cinemas afloat from a revenue perspective but i also think you know let's let's not forget the really great original you know feats of storytelling that have gone on in films like everything everywhere and and banshees of any sharon as well and tar and a lot of the great releases that have come out this year that you know many of which we've talked about here on the podcast after sun as well um could the list goes on talking of great releases <laughs> that segue i'm getting smoother every every episode my segues are getting smoother absolutely um Creed 3. So this is the third Creed film, if you didn't get that from the title. Um, <laughs> obviously an expansion of the, the Rocky universe. Um, and this time it is directed by Michael B. Jordan himself, who plays the, the titular character. So how was this and how does it compare to what came before? So since this is Michael B. Jordan's directorial debut with the series as he takes up the mantle for this third part of the trilogy i'm not sure if there will be future creed installments but um i wondered heading into creed 3 kind of two main points i felt that whilst decent overall creed 2 was overly long and far more languid than the first installment in terms of pacing i felt it was borderline lifeless in some moments and narratively kind of running on fumes i didn't really feel like it completely justified its existence whereas i thought the original Creed really kind of revitalised the franchise, Even, you know, because I thought with Rocky Balboa that we were kind of saying goodbye to the Rocky cinematic universe. But in fact, Creed showed that there was still more valuable story to be told. So in this third entry, I was wondering, you know, is it going to justify its existence from a narrative perspective and provide a compelling yarn? And also, are we going to see Michael B. Jordan putting his own sort of stylistic stamp on the franchise? Uh, from the director's seat and breathe more energy into the film than Stephen Cable Jr. did in Creed 2. And I'm really pleased to report that Jordan is able to successfully achieve both these feats. His direction and camera moves have the, the slick and muscular heft of a big budget studio production of a very invigorating and incite, exciting and energetic sports sports drama. And, you know, as an addition to a very popular, well-loved successful at the box office franchise but he also delivers some really i think terrific stylistic flourishes and he has a deft hand for the more intimate character drama that takes more of a central stage this time than the actual sort of boxing plot lines you know that you get these danger soaked nighttime glare of the car lights crossing the housing projects of you know south central los angeles and early flashback sequences and they grab our attention before we're you know propelled and finessed in, with some really skillful match cuts into the present day fight and training sequences. And whilst I don't think he infuses the fights and the film at large with quite the same, you know, bustling momentum and kinetic energy that Ryan Coogler embraced in the first Creed, you know, I thought his direction in the first Creed really made that film. Uh, Michael B. Jordan, I do think he's leaned more into the balletic nature of the fight choreography which gives these face-offs a, an even greater athletic feel, which for me was sorely missing from Creed 2. There's a particularly effective sequence that I really loved that takes on this quite surprisingly surrealist approach where the audience, the lights, the cameras, and all the extraneous noise, it, it all just vanishes from uh, the stadium that this boxing match is taking place in. Uh, and it's, it's almost like it's a dream sequence. And, you know, time becomes more elastic as the two boxers kind of feel the energy of the moment and go all out on each other. It's like, you know, all the extraneous distractions have melted away and they're just like time is, is nothing and they're just in the moment with each other. That sequence was a real highlight for me. On the topic of Jonathan Majors, because he was also a concern of mine going in, I spoke in a previous episode about how I really was not a fan of his performance in the new Ant-Man film. I thought he was awkward and erratic and the exact opposite of the kind of he didn't have the fear inducing gravitas that I wanted out of that character and it gives me great pleasure to say that he's back on top form here in Creed 3. He brings this really magnetic combination of kind of this, this off-kiltable kind of slimy charm with this 
volatile narcissism that seems to be broiling just beneath the surface of every kind of social interaction he has with characters in the film. But he also conveys this regret and subtly layered sadness that makes him far more empathetic and compelling as a character. He's a very layered villain. I almost don't even really want to fully call him a villain because his motivations are far more complex than he's just, I just want, I want the title. You know, he's, he's a, uh, he of course delivers that boisterous and antagonizing aggression that makes him a very entertaining adversary for Adonis to go head to head with. But, you know, as a character, you know, a, a past, uh, a past friend who's was a very sort of formative presence in Adonis's earlier life, who's now come back to assert his presence and reconnect with him in the present time that the film takes place in. He's a uh, yeah. He he brings a lot of detail and sort of variation to the script and story character wise. Perhaps the thing that impressed me most about Creed 3, though, is how much more time is dedicated to unpacking the characters' lives and memories when outside of the ring than even the actual training or the boxing itself. The story quite compellingly dives into themes of reconciling our past feelings of trauma and learning to heal in the present and communicate those feelings in the interest of healing and not keeping them bottled in, learning to adapt when life or a dream doesn't turn out exactly the way we wanted it to. I think taking the time to build out the history between Adonis and Damien, Jonathan Major's character, before they're anywhere near any of the big fights, I mean, those really don't come into, I think, the second half. We spend a lot of time just letting that re- that reconnection just expand and grow. I think it does wonders for the story, and it means that by the time we get to the big conflicts, there's so much more underlying conflict that goes into that eventual showdown. It makes it that much more momentous. Adonis and Bianca's struggle in their relationship also brings added emotional weight. I think the film as a whole makes really good use of its two-hour runtime. You get the action you want, but you also get that character that I think makes the fights then mean that much more in the grander scheme of the story. And it feels like the character progressions are much more fleshed out by the end. I do wish it went even deeper in on some of those themes of letting go of the past and bottling up emotions. As some of the argument scenes that are trying to be explosive do feel at times a bit measured or even slightly neutered, like, you know, they'll shout at each other, but it's like, oh, it, it didn't, it kind of lands with a thud, it didn't really, you know, connect in the way they wanted it to. But as a whole, it didn't really stop me from investing in their efforts to grow and, and help each other heal. And yeah, I overall, I really enjoyed Creed 3. It's a big step up from Creed 2. Not the lightning in the bottle revitalization of the franchise that I think the original Creed was, but I, I had a very good time with this, even if I do think it could have gone even deeper on some of the more emotive character drama. I would give this a solid B+. Do you think there'll be a Creed 4? Yeah, I, I, think there's too much mo- I think there's too much money in this franchise to to bottle it out now. Although I do, although if this was the last one, I do actually think the ending of Creed 3 is conclusive enough for them to just tie it up and leave it there. But um, no, I, I think they'll keep it going some more. Here's hoping they can just continue the streak of quality. There was a bit of controversy, wasn't there, with this one about um, whether or not Stallone was going to be in it? Or am I making that up? No, 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 you're not making that up at all. That's very well documented. I think when... I'm not super well read upon this story but my understanding is that in order to get uh the original rocky optioned and seen and made because sylvester stallone famously wrote rocky at a very sort of low incredibly low period in his life and was trying his best to break into the industry and he had no money and i don't think he had a house and yeah it was very very dark time and i think he essentially sold the rights to this very sort of mean-spirited producer who and he's he's been battling to try and get it back to hit mm-hmm. you know for for decades i think and i think just the, again i'm not super clear on the details but the i think just the fighting and the arguments over the state of the franchise and the direction it's going in and sylvester stallone's involvement has just has reached sort of a peak of venom and to the point where i think sylvester stallone's just like no i'm taking the ha- my hands off i'm i'm not going to be involved and for him he said in interviews it's not about the money for me I, I want to leave, you know, an artistic legacy and 
you know, artistic property to my children. And at the at the moment, I can't do that because of who has the who has the rights. Yeah, that's that's actually really disheartening, isn't it? Especially when you know a piece of art means so much to someone who created it. You know, I know I'd be I'd be devastated being in the same position that that he's in. So yeah, that's. That's really sad to hear, but I hope that eventually he gets the rights back and that it becomes his legacy, his his cinematic legacy. Moving on then, so we've now got um, a little bit more of an indie comedy. Um, I was really hoping to watch this when it came out. I wasn't able to, but it is now streaming on Sky and that's Brian and Charles. Yeah, so Brian and Charles stars David Earl, who you will know from his work with Ricky Gervais in Derek and Afterlife. Really terrific comedic and dramatic actor. He is the titular Brian. He lives a quite isolated and recluse existence in a very remote home in the Welsh Valleys. He's a kind of madcap inventor. He makes all these strange, wacky contraptions that don't always quite work. And there's one where it's kind of, it's a clock that is attached to a bike that Brian is supposed to be able to pedal and fly on. It's like, so if you want to know the time, you just look up in the sky and go, oh yeah, there's there's Brian on his on his flying clock. <laughs> really, really funny, quirky things like that. And after a particularly dour winter, you know, Brian finds himself in, you know, a state of partic- particularly high state of loneliness and depression. And he went out looking for you know, new items to spare on his next sort of spate of, you know, creative inspiration. He finds some a washing machine and a mannequin head that's been fly tipped, and you know, in what any sane normal person would do when they're feeling kind of alone, Brian decides to build a, a robot who is named uh, Charles, who then sort of becomes his companion, and they she have. Do. Yeah, as you do, of course. As Any sort of norm, normal it's human normal, activity. Normal. Yeah, and it's sort of about their escapades and their sort of developing relationship. How it's very kind of innocent to start off with, but you know, as adolescents in, invert, in inverted commas burgeons with Charles, he sort of becomes sort of a bratty teenager, and Brian has to become sort of a parental figure there. And yeah, it's about sort of their bond and their relationship. But one of the things that immediately surprised me about Brian and Charles is the the aesthetic approach they've taken here. It's got this quite stark contrast heavy lighting in some of the interior sequences alongside being shot in a 239 to 1 widescreen aspect ratio, which ends up lending the film a far more cinematic look, which I wasn't necessarily expecting given that this is a pretty offbeat and quirky independent British comedy drama I would have expected it to just be like kind of handheld in in, you know 16 by 9. On paper I think that could potentially lead to a stylistic mismatch between say the tone of the screenplay and the mood evoked by the cinematography and direction. Actually for me what it ended up doing was giving a robustness and a clarity to the storytelling which I think melded really well with the quirk of the character interaction. There's a terrific opening shot which frames Brian uh, centrally uh, alone in this rather dingy looking workshop and slowly pushes in on him from afar as he works on his latest invention and that immediately tells you all you need to know about his state of loneliness and I really love it when a film can so clearly and instantly distill and lay out a thematic idea you know with its opening shot at the very outset tell you all you need to know and get you into the the central idea it has a really nice balance between the, this very homegrown, grassroots, DIY-inflected slapstick comedy and how bumbling and cumbersome Charles' movement and physical appearance is because he has this, you know, huge boxy washing machine body and these really kind of, you know, flailing limbs <laughs> and clumsy movement. And, and then Brian's efforts to control the situation. Along with the eccentric wilderness of... I, it reminded me of like the eccentric wilderness of a British, another British indie like Sightseers, for example, and also the like the incandescent charm of of that very underappreciated Frank Langella sci-fi comedy drama Robot and Frank, which actually you know has a very kind of clear plot link here. Brian and Charles, it's very gently funny and idiosyncratic, but the, the quirk never supersedes how warm, charming, and empathetic 
the film's approach to loneliness and compassion and companionship is. It has a lot of heart, but not in an overly sentimental or clawing way. It, it has this feeling, genuine feeling about it and has great generosity in it. This is helped by how much of a terrific screen presence David Earle is. Obviously from his past work with Ricky Gervais in Afterlife and Derek, you know, we clearly has spot on comedic timing here and, and a great touch for, you know, wince inducing, scrungy, you know, blemished and rugged humour. But what really makes him for me such a great performer is that he's able to so effortlessly weave in this underlying pathos and sadness into his characters that then makes it so easy to connect with and invest in them. And you couple that with the solid job the film does with presenting Charles as a, as a credible, sentient being. You know, he never feels like a prop. And you have a wonderfully touching central pair and a lot of actually really great chemistry between them. They have this real ease of communication. I do have a few reservations with the film. It started life as, well, it actually started life as, I think, a radio programme and then developed into a stand-up routine then into a 13-minute short film and now into an 83-minute feature. And I, I think in the transition to being a feature, even at a pretty compact 83 minutes, by the end, I feel like the filmmakers have stretched the subject and story about as thin as it possibly could have been. This also isn't helped by the fact that there are some not particularly graceful attempts by the script to raise the stakes and inject tension that will then sustain the film for the full duration of the runtime. I mean, it's kind of par for the course that when you're expanding a short out into a feature, you need to add in sort of plot lines that are going to, you know, take the film down avenues that will, you know, lengthen the story and give it sort of legs beyond the initial, you know, 10 minute proof of concept. You know, there's a town bully whose family seems to have a long-standing contempt for Brian and they torment him at any given opportunity. There's also this budding romance with a kindred spirit in the village who takes a shine to Brian. And while both do result in some satisfying late-in-the-day resolutions, on the whole, they're pretty underdeveloped plot lines, and I feel like they could have really done with some more fleshing out. Sometimes the simplicity and the, the rudimentary nature of the vocal quips and the comedic dialogue it can feel a little too basic to the point where it kind of affects the jokes and they don't quite land. It's kind of just like, oh, that was a little bit, not immature, just, I guess, a little bit juvenile. They're just considering, you know, how smart some of the, the slapstick gags are. And also some of the gags are about, you know, Charles becoming accustomed to his new surroundings and world. Some of the, some of the jokes, they feel a little bit below the film's belt, considering the quality of the writing elsewhere. The film also has this kind of strange half-mockumentary approach where it has this very kind of bold cinematic visual presentation like I previously mentioned, but Brian speaks to the camera and the camera operator as though he's kind of being half, you know, loosely interviewed. And this leads to some moments where David Earl, it feels as though he's, and Brian, within the context of the film and the film's world, it feels as though he's performing more to the crew that are following him than perhaps the character would have on his own and if the camera was just kind of like this omniscient uh, viewer of the action. There's this really quiet, quietly beautiful moment early on where he watches a flock of sheep walking together. And we see in his facial expression a longing for that feeling of community that the flock have together. And he then gestures towards the camera and, and makes a quip. There's kind of, he's, he sits there and he looks and examines and he's like, wonderful subtle bit of acting and then he quips to the camera and I feel like it, it slightly undercut that moment I do think some of the drama would have been more effective if they just if there hadn't been this mockumentary crew implication if they if they had just let the character's behavior speak for itself but you do kind of grow into it and I don't think it you know hampers the overall drama too much and it's strangely charming and offbeat and it it has real real warmth and real empathy and and considering you know this could have really really been quite irksome and really not worked at all i think it it does work quite well and i liked it i would give this a b and that is available to stream now on sky it is we're also going to talk about so this is another streaming film 
it's been out in cinemas. It's got like a limited release, is that right? Yes, it, I think it was in cinemas for a week or two from the 24th of February, and it came on streaming uh, yesterday on Friday, March the 10th. This is Luther, The Fallen Son, um, which I'm just going to get it out of the way straight away. Um, bad title. <laughs> not a fan of The Fallen Son. It's not sun as in like the prodigal son. It's sun as in, you know, the, the big thing in the sky. And it, I, d- I don't know why, but it gives me like weird fan fiction vibes. <laughs> you know, when things are like titles are too dramatic for their own good, it's like the full sun. And, you know, I mean, uh, it's Luther, so it can be dramatic, but it, it was just for, for some reason that doesn't quite sit <laughs> with me. Um, but anyway, so this is a BBC series, Luther, and now Netflix. Uh, Idris Elba plays Luther. What did you think? This is is this the final kind of instalment in the Luther uh, story? <laughs> well, I thought it was <laughs> until oh. <laughs> I, until I, until I watched it. Um, so yeah, so B- very well loved BBC crime drama uh, about a very volatile sort of police officer who's very kind of unethical and at times sort of corrupt methods of ca- of solving cases, but. He does have this very kind of dogged determination when it comes to pursuing criminals and pursuing justice. And uh, Luther the Fallen Son, again, I agree with you on the, on the melodramatic title, and that does extend to the tone of the film here. But this picks up in the immediate aftermath of the killer season five cliffhanger, where we know we saw Luther having you know been arrested after this you know very very significant character death that he was framed for, and we now. Uh, he is, this isn't a spoiler to say because it's in the trailer, but he is imprisoned and he now, with the rise of a new killer in a new case, he has to then find his way out of there and uh, pursue that case and also pursue the clearance of his name. Now, my biggest excitement going into Luther, given that it, it was one of my favourite shows back in the yeah. Outside of simply having one of my favourite British crime drama series back on screen, I really wanted to see the fallout of that incredible cliffhanger that closed out season five. And in a crushingly disappointing move, the structure completely bungles this aspect of the story at the very start of the film. It first shows Luther being assigned to the case that will form the later sections of the narrative, which just immediately deflates any sense of tension around Luther's prosecution and imprisonment because we're effectively told that he will make it back to investigating this outside of the confines of prison. So now I'm just kind of looking at my watch going, okay, how long is it going to be before he breaks out? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which, having seen the trailer after the film, it's actually shown that he does. Um, You don't even get the satisfaction of the thrill of seeing, you know, the immediate, immediate aftermath of of his arrest and court case because the, the news of Luther's conviction is delivered by this really flaccid expository news report and the film you know very unceremoniously dumps him in prison it's like oh okay that couldn't have been you know less you know fluidly handled (laughs) it could have been couldn't have been more clumsily handled um another big misfire for me with the fallen sun is its style and direction and the incongruence that that then that then creates with the original series and how ill-befitting the the kind of the Netflix feel is for the material here. I get when you're making a film from a TV series, and of course when you're doing it with a different distributor and production house than the original people, you know, Netflix as opposed to the BBC. You know, you're you're naturally going to get a slightly different presentation and execution with the with the final product. And but I really do think it's affected this for the for the worse here. Now, Luther was never a show that really operated strictly within the boundaries of plausibility. When watching a series recap before viewing the film, I was actually taken aback at how ludicrous some of the storylines are on paper when you read about them from the series. But what made them absolutely work on screen there was the rawness of the cast performances and this murky, misty, sinisterly brooding atmosphere the show had. There was this darkness and grit that ran through the show's bloodstream that made it searingly compelling alongside Idris Elba's really, you know, ripping central performance. And that raw feeling is completely lost here. The, sh- the Netflix sheen and slickness of this more cinematic formation has 
sanitized Luther and sucked any soul or shock factor out of the story. And it also contributes to this considerably more bombastic tone and, and self-serious tone that, that sits at the register of melodramatic right from the outset. I mean, the title kind of clues you in to exactly what the feel of this is going to be right from the start. And, you know, with Luther's laughably easy and convenient prison escape, the preposterous reach of the villain's schemes, these needlessly garish and faux-artfully orchestrated murder sequences that are nothing like the, the boots-on-the-ground tactical tactile, raw, um, you know, conflicts that we saw in the series, and Andy Serkis's borderline caricatured performance as the villain, The Fall of the Sun manage, manages the impressive feat of being eye-rollingly outlandish, but also hugely dull. There's a, there's a howl-inducing lack of realism that's then further compounded by some, I don't know what it is with bad visual effects at the moment you know we talked about ant-man recently there's some really terrible and unnecessary cgi here which never featured in the original show i'm like why did we need this now you know why do we need explosions and mad car crashes and train crashes I'm like, oh can we just it's a film billy we're in hollywood <laughs> now darling <laughs> yeah you know but um even like idris elba's even even his performance feels stripped of that dog determination and animalistic volatility that infused his character in the original series. The Fallen Sun, just in terms of writing and presentation, it feels so wholly disconnected and far removed from everything that made the, the series interesting and entertaining to me. In its second half, The Fallen Sun does actually decide to break away from the from the bravura of the first half, the, the excess and and tighten its grip back on the atmosphere and more restrained and cold-blooded storytelling that we loved in the original show. However, this seemingly beneficial shift in, in gears is, is stunted by a couple of different things. One of it being that the second hour is absurdly elongated and the pace like thuddingly grinds to a halt, even featuring like this needless adventure into, a, in, into frozen tundras that you will have seen in the trailer, you know, reading is a last-ditch effort to inject, you know, some sort of life into the story through a change of scenery that doesn't really have any, for me, any really solid narrative justification for it. And you get these really horror-tinged sequences of kidnapping and, and violence and, against young women that just read to me as, as kind of ghastly and pernicious. I'm like, this this feels really gratuitously inserted here. Why? Why? And the fact that this plodding second hour is propped up by this this scattershot and ridiculous first half means that the later drama struggles to have any real weight or credibility due to what has incited it beforehand. It's worth mentioning that this film runs slightly longer than the two-episode fourth season of the show, and whilst there were criticisms of the fourth season being too condensed, it still managed to get through a lot. Like, it does actually have an arc the fourth season, even in, you know, two 60-minute episodes. And... You know, when you place the Fallen Sun's overlong trudge, you know, at two hours and five minutes, you know, to the relative tautness of season four, which runs slightly shorter than the Fallen Sun, it becomes all the more apparent how far we've fallen from grace here. And then to top, you know, all I wanted at the end, even after all of that, was just a nice, you know, conclusive tying up of the the Luther storyline, given that we didn't really get a proper conclusive finish. Um, with the season five cliffhanger. Uh, but then what happens is we get an ending that is inconclusive, nonsensical, and hints at a narrative expansion where there should be none. <laughs> I wanted a satisfying bookend to the series, and I got sequel bait. To say I am unamused is a grave understatement. I'm just... Oh, I'm, I'm so disappointed. I love this show. <laughs> Truly the fallen, son. Uh, yes, the fall from grace. They should have named maybe, the film. Maybe the title is more accurate than I gave it credit for. Uh, mm. they, were, they were getting all meta. Grace. They were getting all meta with it. <laughs> okay, so on to our next review, and this one is a bit of a departure because this is not a recent release. This is actually a very old release. And yeah. This was replaying at the watershed. Um, unfortunately, Billy's had COVID this week, so he didn't get to go and see it on the big screen. But Very both sad. of us, both of us, got to watch it um, on streaming. It's on 
Amazon, it's on Apple, it's on YouTube uh, for those who want to watch it. So this is Book and the Preacher. It is directed by the incredible, the legend that is Sidney Portier. And we actually discussed afterwards, because I watched I watched this. I'd seen a few Sydney Portier films, but I was like, you know what? I want to do a Sydney Portier episode after watching this. I really want to I'm like, so down. I really want to just go through his whole filmography and, and have a look. Because um this this was a really good time. I really enjoyed this. So Book and the Preacher, what were your thoughts, Billy? Yeah, I, I had a really terrific time with this too. So centering on a wagon master kind of at the at the time in the in the wild west when uh slavery had been abolished and black slaves were freed and no longer you know by law you know committed to being you know servants to you know racist white people and buck is a wagon master a black wagon master who takes it upon himself to help transport these free slaves uh, across the West uh, during a time when, you know, you still had, you know, the advent of, you know, discrimination and racist outlaws who were looking to, you know, reclaim these slaves and, you know, put them put them back into squalor. And it really does just kind of set itself up as, you know, the it's it's been described as the, uh, the socially conscious Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Which I think is a is a really great uh, comparison piece, because um, it really is the most socially conscious and relevant, you know, classic western I can think of, and it has that really fun sort of buddy uh, companionship in it. In, in that uh, Buck meets um, a con man preacher who is just named Preacher, and they team up and make and form an unlikely duo, and, and are able to. Uh, teach each other different things about how to conduct their their business. And also worth pointing out that the preacher is played by uh, Harry Belafonte, and both um, Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte were friends or frenemies. They were always competing against <laughs> each other in real life, and I feel like their chemistry in this film, the way they kind of bounce off each other, that was one of the most enjoyable bits for me. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's fabulous. They do have a really great rapport, you know, the, the kind of stern, steely reserve that Buck has versus, you know, the kind of the, 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 the not sinister, the kind of the, the scheming uh, glint in the eye that, that Preacher has. They're, they're really great foils to one another and inform each other really well. One thing I didn't realise going into Buck and the Preacher was that Sidney Poitier not only starred in it, but also he, he also directed it as well. So needless to say, I was very much intrigued to see if his directorial efforts were at all comparable to the legendary calibre of his acting. Now, this is this was especially true, you know, considering Buck takes place in a, in a genre with such recognisable stylistic markers as a Western and one which was revising and potentially deconstructing that cinematic blueprint. And it was so such a joy-inducing surprise to see that one of the film's several strengths is its direction. You know, the ac- action sequences are very well orchestrated. The camera placement gives a, a great handle on the geography of the firefights and very kind of nimbly manoeuvres around cover and houses as the foes dart between them and evade gunfire. There's movement and drive which makes them exciting. He also shows great judgment, knowing when to jab in on those classic spaghetti western and extreme close-ups of faces to inject sort of powder cake tension into those pauses of hiding between the volleys of gunfire. Poitier also has a really good eye for the visual sweep of the Louisiana landscape, but also the intimacy and strong bond between uh, the slaves and Buck as he's trying to transport them across the west. He also peppers in these the usual, like, very entertainingly zany crash zooms and whip pans that are now synonymous with the classic westerns of the 60s and 70s. I was going to say, I, I did enjoy the direction of this film, but some of those, like, camera move choices were wild. Like, <laughs> yeah, they, are, they were. They, they kind of come out of nowhere. <laughs> and then they just, like, <laughs> crash zoom into, like, the most stern face because it's, like, you know, dramatic. <laughs> so you get, like, you get this Scott Pilgrim-esque, you know, whip zoom. 
um, into like the the crossest looking man you've ever seen, <laughs> and, and some of the, some of them did kind of it aged the film a little bit for me. You know, yeah, it made hard. me giggle more than it made me you know be part of the action. But hmm. considering it's an action film, it's a western. You know, there there is a kind of fun uh, action movie style feel to it. Um, it didn't. It didn't take me too much out of it. It felt quite at home, but at the same time, I was just like, "What was that?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, what was he? But I think that you know, I do think it ages it a little bit, and maybe kind of takes you out of the experience a little bit because you're obviously like consciously going, "Oh wow, that was a really strange camera move," rather than you know being totally um, enveloped in the story. But I do think it like added real character to the film at certain points, and I think in general. The writing, the performances in Poitiers' direction in Buck and the Preacher, it, it strikes this really terrific balance between, you know, coherently and firmly grasping, you know, the seriousness of the themes and communicating a socially conscious message. He dedicates the film at the very start in the sort of the title cards to the men, women and children who lie in graves as unmarked as their place in history, a very kind of powerful intro statement that I do think comes across in the interaction between him and the slaves here and also the the racist outlaws that are pursuing them. So he balances communicating this socially conscious message while also keeping a strong hand on this thoroughly pulp-laden entertainment. I wouldn't say there's like a tremendous amount of like in-depth script substance, like beyond the broad stroke social commentary that's present in the main plot with the racial tension and discrimination. But because of like the film's stylistic vibrancy and subversive view of the Western within the the social and cinematic context of the early 70s with, you know, sometimes the the lack of inclusivity in historical dramas and westerns and also the civil rights issues of the time, alongside being very well-paced and very energetic and enjoyable, it kind of doesn't need to have that in-depth script substance. It's almost like the formal construction and design of the film within the cinematic landscape of the time, It take that takes on the substance rather than you know really deep theme and it has this narrative tautness between the set pieces and dialogue scenes which keeps the film like consistently engaging it does actually do it does also have some fairly smart script flourishes even if it doesn't have the greatest thematic nuance you know i really loved that scene when bucks it's you know bargaining with the native americans and really respectfully sort of negotiating you know the, the use of their land and it really deepens that focus on equality and equilibrium between different races in this harsh landscape. And also the implication that that, um, that relationship had been quite long-standing, that really came across. And also including that earlier on, it meant that when their presence is shown in like later action sequences, it meant that the film smartly quite like sidestepped the use of like any convenient deus ex machina moments. It's like, oh, the Indians arrived. No, actually. Because we'd established that earlier, the the presence of the Native Americans really makes sense, and seems like a logical progression there. That was definitely the one of my favourite scenes. I really enjoyed yeah, that. Yeah, me too. I like I like the introduction of Buck's wife as well in the second half, and how the focus kind of narrowed in the second half to being a bit more quieter than the action. It it brought in slightly more emotional weight for me and introduced this interesting conflict between. Buck's loyalty to his wife and his commitment to saving the vulnerable and marginalised people. Excuse me. And also the the danger his work puts himself in and his responsibility, you know, as being a partner. And the way Buck subtly teaches the preacher social responsibility, whilst preacher shows Buck a more forceful and sometimes necessary approach to outsmarting outlaws, is also interesting and it keeps, you know, the story freshly developing over the course of the runtime. And of course, you know, Sidney Poitier, the legend that is, I, I love this man so much, you know, rest in peace, what a legend. He's in typically excellent form. He just oozes charisma and swagger and he's so effortlessly cool he's so and quietly cool. and is. quietly imposing. Yeah, yeah. There's that bit where the, you know, he he runs into so you've got these bigoted outlaws who are on the hunt for Buck and the the rest of the people that he's trying to get safely across the border. And uh, the preacher has kind of set them up and, and said that like he was going to pass on Buck, he was going to bring Buck to them. And there's a bit where they're just kind of like discussing him. And he's <laughs> like, who's this guy? And then he comes out of nowhere with his guns and he's like, 
and Buck. <laughs> it was like the best shootout that I've ever seen. The most dramatic deaths. And I was like, that is iconic. That is such an iconic yeah. thing. Just, I'm he, Buck. He's kind of, it has, they call me Mr. Tibbs vibes from his role oh, in The Heat of the Night. It's just, just so great. The most iconic lines of any film. It's so good. It's so, oh, so good. He's great. He honestly, for me, he gives, at times, he gives Clint Eastwood in the Dollars Trilogy a run for his money and how, like, tough and, like, his steely conviction. He's he's so great in this. And it's it's just another distinct, you know, cracking performance in his, you know, already amazing You know, he's just, he has such range and such varied performances. One last thing I'd like to say about Buck and the Preachers is that the score is wild. The score is oh, yeah. awesome. <laughs> It has these really like booming primal drums, these bristling, almost like shrill, like tension laden harmonicas that like color the standoffs with like a terrific dose of menace. And I also picture that, you know, Sidney Poitier and the composer had this conversation and like the, the composer went, you know, how much jaw harp do you want? And Poitier just <laughs> said, yes. <laughs> it, it feeds. It's just like, wow, 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 like, you know, so much. And it features so prominently early on. And it adds real verb and bite to the chase and action sequences. But, but I was just like, wow, that's, that's, they're really harping on that jaw harp. And, but thankfully, you know, the use of it is dialed back later on into the more sensitive moments. So it doesn't, it doesn't become too overbearing. But yeah, the score is, <laughs> the score is wild. And it's, it, is, it really it does add a lot of, thing to behold. Yeah. Adds a lot of personality, but yes, had a terrific time with this, and it's very kind of it has a lot of extra sort of social significance in the cinematic landscape of the time, while also being very entertaining. It was a hoot. Uh, give this an A minus. Really enjoyed it. Now on to our final film of the week, and this is an animated film that you can watch on Netflix. It's called The Sea Beast. So I've not heard anything about this film, Billy. So tell me, what do I need to know? Well, this so this is up for the Best Animated Feature Oscar, which is kind of why I was sort of drawn to it as well. Centres on a young girl who stows away on the ship of a sort of legendary you know, band of, of sea monster hunters. And through battling some of those monsters and sort of chasing after this illustrious sort of mystical, you know, mythic creature, it becomes stranded on an island, this young girl and the chief like monster monster hunter of the crew and they end up kind of discovering that there's more to maybe these animals meets the eye and they start to both learn more about each other and teach each other things about life and also maybe open each other's eyes as to like the true implications of this hunting that they're doing and yeah i was i was interested to see how it kind of stacked up against the the rest of the animated feature nominees and right off the bat the Sea Beast visuals. I mean, when you're going into an animation, wondering what the animation is going to look like, and the visuals are, are very impressive. Some of the markers I would tend to look for in an animated feature as denoting, you know, the level of quality, the extent of the detail there are things like water, hair, sand, grass, foliage, trees, materials and part of the world that have a lot of physical inter- intricacy and texture. If the animation can portray that well, then I'm, you know, you get a thumbs up from me. And judging it on these aspects, the Sea Beast animation is of great quality and fidelity there is a tremendous amount of detail especially in the character's coarse hair and the way it kind of naturally moves and behaves in the wind and the water the water is also beautifully rendered it looks so luscious and silky which i could also say generally describes that you know the popping colors and saturated vibrancy of the animation if i were to critique the animation at all some of the general presentation is like moderately inconsistent in some of the wides the lighting can be quite harsh or the level of detail that i praised before doesn't necessarily come across in the character models. Sometimes a grand vista will appear, you know, very visually sumptuous, but the bodies of a group of characters situated against the backdrops can appear a little sloppy and lackluster by comparison. In close-up, some of the aspects I mentioned previously, um, the animation does hold up to a lot of scrutiny and others it doesn't quite. It also, in general, doesn't have the quite the clarity or fluency of movement that, say, a Pixar film has. But then again, you know, what animated film does have that same level that a Pixar film has. Some of the character models also kind of run the gamut of looking angular and a bit bulbous in design. They aren't the most visually appealing I've ever seen in, in an animated feature. 
That being said, it's great to see such inclusivity in the cast here with prominency given to a number of black and female characters alongside the 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 white male and female characters as well. It was um it was really nice, nice to see that that natural sort of diversity, you know, baked into the fabric of the story. Early on there were some quite exhilarating action sequences that involved the destruction and shifting layout of ships that are being overturned and gradually destroyed by sea monsters as the, as the pirates and monster hunters battle with them. And there were compelling uses of movement and shifts in the arrangement of the battleground. You know, the ship will get, you know, turned up so it's like kind of perpendicular or like at a right angle, and then that changes the way the, the crew have got to climb up or move around the boat to sort of gain the upper hand and advantage on the monster, you know, shifting between broken areas of the ship. And the camera makes these well-executed and slick long-take moves around rope ladders and through cracks in the ship, which really injects some nice kinetic visual spice. And that being said, while there is some you know, rip-roaring, you know, swashbuckling action early on, for the first 45 minutes or so, the Sea Beast, it feels quite paint-by-the-numbers, animated, fantastic adventure. That being said, the narrative and writing really started to impress me when we moved beyond that for five minute mark the focus is is narrowed in on fewer characters and the carnage is sort of dialed back and here the the sea beast very satisfyingly revealed that it's actually quite thematically intelligent it presents some very intriguing and relevant ideas about inherited prejudices specifically how literature and rhetoric that has been engineered to fit them by a group to fit the narrative of that hateful group and how that hateful group are trying to Marginal, marginalize and eliminate another group can then be perpetuated by that literature you know that prejudice perspective it, that will sound quite heavy for a children's film when i describe it like that but it's packaged in a way that is really palatable for that demographic and it also describes great prowess in visual storytelling there's this there is the central conceit of a book which keys in that theme of the manipulated literature but more often than not we see a closed-minded and arrogant or blindly hateful character come to see the truth of his prejudice by seeing the the true spirit and compassion of the animals he's hunting you know, through interactions and comedic set pieces it shows growth and character development in action and that it comes from active physical situations rather than you know dialogue heavy exposition or exchanges or big monologues you know there are a couple of you know slightly on the nose you know lines of dialogue that sort of explain those themes but they're but they're they're relatively brief um so the the growth of the characters uh is shown in a in action the character development shown in action and that it comes from active physical situations rather than you know these dialogue heavy exchanges i mean there's the occasional you know slightly heavy-handed line that sort of quite plainly explains a thematic point but they're brief and also i get that this is for a younger audience so that is kind of necessary in you know small doses there are also several well-executed character arcs that are really solid solidly balanced across several characters in the cast and similarly to the point that i mentioned previously the shifts and leaps in the arcs are incited by the actions of other parties like the royal guard or the the animals they're hunting or the the tribes tribes they meet or the band of monster hunters it's great to see thought like this given to the themes and character development and to see a cast whose changes are linked to conscious behavioral responses to events in the narrative and you know i, I really praise that and value that in an animated sort of more children oriented feature we don't have to sacrifice that in the interest in the interest of dumbing things down for a younger audience so yes I, I i really like this i i wouldn't say i think it i think i would say it's still my least favorite of the animated category but i think that's more indicative of the the high quality of the other nominees rather than this um i thought this was very solid i would give this a b plus and that is everything for our reviews this week so thank you billy for filling us in on what we need to be watching uh, what have we got coming up next week so next week we have Pearl, which is the sort of very hotly anticipated prequel to X, the sort of revisionist slasher horror film that sort of took everyone by surprise, um, I think, last year. So starring Mia Goff, that's pretty cool, A24, that's out uh, next Friday. We have Champions, a 
disability-focused um, sports comedy starring Woody Harrelson by the Farrelly Brothers. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we have a drama, I'm Fine, Thanks for Asking. Uh, we have the next instalment in the Scream franchise, Scream 6. Um, I kind of thought that we were going to be done with that at Scream 5, but we shall see what the sixth instalment has to offer. And we also have a Asian drama, Lunana, a yak in the classroom. So a great lineup coming up next week. Be sure to tune in. Um, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Test Screening Podcast. Yes, I'm sure we will be providing some live updates on the on the stories, uh, given our coverage of the Academy Awards on Sunday night. Very exciting. And we shall see if any of my predictions were correct. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and we will be back next week with more reviews. Bye. See you next week. Thank you for listening. Bye.